Hey, good evening, everyone. Broadcasting live from Stony Creek, Ontario. August 10th. And apologies for the quote there. Seems that it was doing some error in the formatting. I'll have to figure out how to fix that. Here we have another quote about teaching. These aren't my quotes. These are quotes from the book Buddha Vachana, translated by and cho chosen and translated by Venerable Dhammika. It's a monk who lives, I believe, in Singapore. Not quite sure. Anyway, seems like a very nice monk, and he's put together this very nice collection. This is on teaching. Basically, the idea is that one should teach if one is able to. You know, if you're not a very good teacher. And, hmm. Well, if you're not a very good teacher, see, the interesting thing, or my take on that is teaching like practicing is a skill that you learn. I've been giving talks for, been teaching the Dhamma for many, many years. I've been really teaching about 10 years, 9, 10 years, 10 years, which is, you know, a long time, and it was fairly early on in my uh, life as a Buddhist. And it was pretty bad in the beginning. <laughs> I gave talks. Uh, when I first set out on my own, I went up to, I'd had some problems at the monastery, where I, my teacher's monastery and so I went up to Doi Sutep which is above the city of Chiang Mai and uh, that was great in many ways uh, because it, it's, it, Doi Sutep is a tourist attraction so you get I guess hundreds of tourists a day lots and lots maybe more than hundreds I don't know you get lots and lots of tourists every day and but then they, they come up at around sunrise. Sunrise, you get a few people, the, the brave ones, because it's the view is, is is awesome. And then they stay until sunset. So during that time, the monastery area is very crowded and, and busy. Um, but it's in the middle of the rainforest, and the monastery is outside. No one ever sees the actual monastery. And it's incredibly peaceful and quiet it's just a, and it's cool it's really an awesome place to have a meditation center and um so and the number of people that come to we were having 10 15 meditators uh constantly staying with us or it was a nightmare to run and we had no kitchen so trying to, we turned a library into a kitchen and had this sink that they had to drain it manually and that kind of thing. Our cook was, had the, took the brunt of it. Um, but I was teaching so much. I just started giving talks every day, every day. Every morning I would give a talk and then the ev every evening I would give a talk and then there'd be one-on-one -on -one, uh, instruction. 
And I think the talks in the beginning were pretty pretty bad. You can go on uh, some of them. Eventually, I started recording them. I think I was recording talks like 2006. So if you go on my audio page, I think they're still there. Some talks that I gave nine years ago. And you should be able to see the, the difference. In fact, you can probably mark a sort of an evolution as you could probably do with the videos. When I first started putting up YouTube videos, not quite as comfortable. Now I just blather on and, and, and never get to the point of getting old. But the point is to te that teaching is a skill. It's something that you work on. A lot of it has to do with your ability to speak, your ability to pass on what you've learned. Some people are awesome meditators but have trouble teaching, have difficulty teaching. You can be an enlightened arahant and not be able to teach very well at all simply due to lack of training, lack of practice. So yeah, the Buddhist encouragement here, I think I would add something just a little bit that um, you know, don't be discouraged. He says, um, yeah, so light up the Dhamma, let the banner of the sages, so it's good to teach if teaching well is good. This is basically what the Buddha is saying. So my point would be even teaching poorly um, should not lead one to become discouraged because teaching well is often necessarily preclude, uh, preceded by teaching poorly. And the most important, really the only improper teaching is teaching for the wrong reasons. You know, if your heart is in the right place, there's a story, uh, we'll probably get to it in the Dhamma. We will get to it if we, if we continue the Dhammapada st uh, stories. We'll get to uh, this story. It's about um, this lay disciple who goes to see the monks and he asks for a teaching. And he goes to see Anuruddha first, I believe. No. He goes to see Rewata, I think. I think, and Rewata, because Rewata is known for not, for not talking. He likes to be alone. So he goes to see Rewata, and Rewata doesn't even talk to him. Rewata says, okay, come sit down. He says, I want to learn the Dhamma. So Rewata says, okay, then come and sit down here. And so he sits down thinking, hey, if I sit down, then he'll teach me. But... Actually, Revata's intention is, you know, okay, you want to learn the Dhamma, sit down and practice. So he's just doing whatever he can to get this guy to be quiet and, and meditate. And so once he sits down, Revata is quiet and doesn't say anything. And the guy gets, the guy gets upset and he stands up and storms off. And he says, well, that was useless. And he goes to see um, Sariputta, I believe. And Sariputta sits him down. He says, he says, Sariputta, please teach me the Dhamma. I've come here to listen to the Dhamma. And Sariputta sits him down and starts going through the Abhidhamma with him. You know anything about the Abhidhamma? It's very, very long and detailed. So it's the polar opposite of what he got with the first guy. And Sariputta gets you know, just about five minutes in and the guy, excuse me, he gets up and he says, I'm sorry, that, thank you, that's enough. And he gets up and walks away fuming at this point and he goes on and he's looking around and he sees ananda 
And then he goes to goes over to Ananda and sits down with Ananda and says, Venerable sir, I need you to teach me the Dhamma, please. I'm at my wit's end. I need to find someone who can properly teach the Dhamma. I think he's ranting each time. So he, when he gets to Ananda, he says, when he gets to Sariputta, he says, look, I went to see Revata. He didn't talk at all. Please teach me the Dhamma. So, so Sariputta teaches him in length. Then he goes to see Ananda and he tells Ananda, I went to see Revata. He didn't teach. I went to see Sariputta and he taught way too much. You know, just way over my head. Too much detail. Please teach me properly. So Ananda sits him down and teaches him just perfectly. Not too much, not too little. And yet, after some time, this lay guy is this guy is is still dissatisfied, and he gets bored, and he says, "Yeah, yeah, okay, fine." He says, "No, really, uh, I don't know why I'm bothered." Says, "I'm just gonna." That's enough, thank you. And he says, he gets up and he walks away. He says, "I I gotta go to the source. It's the only way." So he goes to the Buddha, and he says, "Venerable sir, I've been to Rewata. Rewata didn't teach me anything. Wouldn't say a word." Went to Sariputta, he taught me way too much. Went to see Ananda, and he's just teaching me, you know, just an ordinary talk that's not too little and not too much. <laughs> just probably actually perfect, but um, totally, he says, totally uninspiring or un unappealing. Uh, he said, uh, "Why is it? You know, why? What? What is the reason for this?" And the Buddha, the Buddha says, "Well, I know the reason." He says that the this is just the way the way of the world. What do you mean? Is what is the way of the world? Well, people people say bad say speak poorly of those who don't talk. They speak poorly of those who talk a lot. They speak poorly of those who talk not too much and not too little. There's no one in this world who's free of free from people talking poorly about them. That's the teaching the Buddha gave. Nati loke anindita anati. Loke and indito or nindita, I can't remember. No one in this world is free from ninda, free from uh, people speaking poorly about them, dispraise. Uh, so, yeah, the worry, um, receiving dispraise, receiving criticism is of course something that we should welcome and this goes as well with teaching if 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 we teach poorly we have to um, well, we have to learn from it and adjust but we certainly don't have to stop sharing the dhamma right so the, the if if you're teaching dhamma for fame or for praise or or uh, money no uh, then yeah bad problem but if your heart is in the right place, if you intend to help other people, then certainly this is something that, that should continue. It shouldn't be in, you can't delude yourself. What it means is not going out and finding students. But when people ask or when people have problems and they ask for advice, you shouldn't say, well, I don't know the Dhamma, so I'll just, you know, whatever, give them something simple. No, you should actually say, well, this this is what is really going to help this person. Let's see. You know, let's give that as our advice. You want my advice? Well, there's this meditation practice I've been doing, and it's quite helpful. I can show you how. And certainly don't be afraid to share. It can be quite useful. So anyway, it's about... Um, there's this curious 
statement as of the Dhamma being the banner of the sages. I think it's called elsewhere the banner of the Arahants. It's um, it's our banner, you know, our our flag. The Buddhist flag is the Dhamma. This is why you see the Dhamma wheel on 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 the Buddhist flag. You also see it on the flag of India. The Dhamma wheel, the Buddhist Dhamma wheel, is on the flag of India. It's only on the on there because of King Asoka, I think, and what and what great king he was, but he was a Buddhist king. And so it's the Dhamma wheel from the Buddha. So we hold so that, that should be a clear message from Buddhism that we don't hold the Buddha as being our object of of you know what we put forth. It's the Dhamma, which is interesting. It ties in with the idea that there was never a Buddha statue in the time of the in the time after the Buddha even. Certainly not in the time of the Buddha, but after he passed away, no one wanted to make a, a, a Buddha image. And in fact, there's one passage that someone pointed out that even suggests that the Buddha was against it. He said it's a bad, bad thing to do because it's necessarily going to be based on imagination. Right? When you see an, an image of the Buddha, it... it um, right? brings up imagination it leads to uh, your your own extrapolation hmm? it's not not exactly in line with reality or it's not strictly real you see an image it's actually just a stone or or, or cement or whatever gold or bronze right and it's not actually the buddha so the, the object of, of focus should be the Dhamma. And when you take the, the Dhamma as your object of reverence, then you get much easier to get close to reality as you're dealing with the teachings, you're dealing with concepts and ideas, views, beliefs, not beliefs, instructions, these kind of things, useful things. Buddha statue not so useful. Useful, but useful on a limited level. So I'm not su suggesting that we get rid of Buddha images. When I first started practicing meditation, a Buddha image was very helpful to me because I was really messed up. I was crying at 3 a.m. I woke up thinking, "Okay, I'll do some meditation." I had a horrible time meditating, and halfway through my course, I was ready to quit. Went to sleep. Got up at 3 a.m. thinking maybe things will be better started meditating, same problem, same craziness in my mind, couldn't take it, and I just stumbled out in the dark, and wandered over to this, there was this bamboo hall, yeah, and there was a light on, and the light was over the Buddha image, and I just saw this Buddha image, and it just lit up for me, and I went straight over and bowed down to the Buddha, I didn't really, wasn't even really into Buddhism, but at that moment I would say I became Buddhist, I just gave myself over to the Buddha, and I said, um, I did the they given us this paper with the refuges and I took the three refuges again because I had been you know been trying all sorts of things how can I succeed in this practice and one of them was to read this this sheet and so I had actually memorized Buddhang Saranangachami Dhammang Saranangachami and it really gave me that 
sort of faith and confidence that allowed me to continue in the practice. Um, so they asked me, I, uh, I was bowing down in the, the next morning, that morning I was bowing down, but I had such, I was so happy, you know, and I was so confident because I just given myself over. It was no longer about me or anything. I'm not, su I'm not suggesting this is correct practice. This was still my, fairly diluted, you know, ideas, but went and I bowed down and the teacher, he looked at me because I wasn't even pointed at the Buddha image. I remember this day, got in there and I just bowed down straight ahead in the room thinking of the Buddha, you know, and he he looked at me and he saw what he says. What are you? Who are you bowing at? Because it was he was to the one side. The Buddha image was to the other side. And I was just bowing down. I didn't even think about it. I was just bowing. And I said, I'm bowing down to the Buddha. And I don't remember how it went after that, but I just remember that feeling of having such great um, appreciation and devotion. So this is what theists have. This is what other religions have and this is what we've adopted as Buddhists it's quite useful on a preliminary level to have that kind of faith and devotion because it allows it gives you the confidence confidence is a positive state so if it's based on your deluded confidence in a in a stone image or a bronze image then by all means good good way to establish your mind and it's more than that, you know, it, it, the thinking, thinking about the Buddha is not delusion. It's awesome to think about the Buddha. This is what we're studying right now in the Visuddhimagga. Studying the Buddha is a, um, an actual meditation practice, and it's quite useful. It, it's incredibly powerful, deceivingly, deceptively powerful. I would say if you've never practiced it, you don't realize. The Buddha said if you think about him and you recite Itibiso, Bhagava, and so on, thinking about the qualities of the Buddha, immediately any fear that you might have will disappear. And if you don't think about the Buddha, think about the Dhamma or the Sangha, one of these three things, because they are so pure, they actually have a, 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 an incredible amount of power, that deceptive, you wouldn't realize it. You would think, well, I'm okay, maybe a little bit of confidence, but no, it's actually quite powerful. It can be quite powerful. Even just Namotasa, there were, in, in, uh, you know how, how people say God bless you or bless you when you sneeze or something, but there came to be this uh, this uh, practice of saying Namotasa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambuddhasa. Whenever whenever there was a problem, you know, kind of like uh, like bless you or something to ward off evil. So there was this there was this woman once, a follower of the Buddha, and she was serving these Brahmins. Her husband was a follower of the the heretics, the other other religious people, and she was so she was obligated to feed them, and so she went out to to, to serve them with this big pot, and she tripped over the carpet, and as she was falling, she said, Apparently, this is what she said, and the Brahmins just were were fuming because they they what is this heresy? What is she doing? Saying she's not saying like God bless you or something. Anyway, yes, I know we've gotten way off, off track. As I said, I, I'm rambling in my old age. But it's all good. It's all dhamma. Nothing wrong with it. so. The point was nothing wrong with paying respect to the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. But we much more take the dhamma, dhamma as our 
The Buddha himself paid homage to the Dhamma. The Dhamma is our banner. Lift the banner of the sages high. How do we do that? How do we take the Dhamma as our banner? It's like a, a holy war, right? In a holy war, they have their banners and they have their weapons and they go to war. Our war is simply to teach, simply to tell the truth. To tell the truth that we have been given and to some extent have realized for ourselves. So, that's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. And if there are any questions, happy to answer questions. Preferably questions about meditation practice. Does the website crash sometimes and just stop? It wasn't updating there for me. Now it's updating again. I had to reload it for it to update. It's not good. Now I see the questions. What can we do if our body reacts to a stimulus like the bell ring before we realize what's going on? I mean, whenever you catch it, Meditation isn't about the past or the future, it's about the present. Whatever happens at the moment when you are ready to be mindful, catch what's there now. Don't worry about what was happening just a second ago. So if you've reacted already to the bell, mindful, be mindful of the reaction. So mindfulness is about not reacting. But if you've already reacted, it's about not reacting now to the reaction. Don't don't worry about well what what it was. Just focus on now. What am I going to? How am I going to react? To? Often I find my mind trying to multitask while meditating. I'll have a thought come up, and while I turn my awareness to it, my mind will sort of stay with the breath in the background. Hey, Robin, you want to ask the questions while well, you're here? Sure. Anyway, I've got this one done, I think. Is this something I need to rework? Yeah, I mean, it's a sign of distraction. It's a sign that your mind is not focused entirely. But it's not, it's not, te tech, it's not exactly something you have to be concerned with. Or you have to, or not something to be seen as a as a mistake. It's something to be seen as an experience, and so to be mindful of that. When you notice, because this has happened, you've gone to the to to the breath. Is it? You've gone to the thought, but then your mind is still with the breath. So go to the mind, and then to the thought, and then the third thing arises is the the awareness of this. Oh, I'm, I'm being, I'm, I'm. My mind is moving back and forth between these two things. That third thing is actually the most important at that point, and that's what you should focus on. When, once you're aware, you realize something is the case, then you should focus on that. Say, for example, knowing, knowing, knowing is a good catch-all. It just means you're aware of the knowing that this is a knowing, an awareness of something. Oh, it's, it's like this or it's like that. That awareness you should catch up. Because the awareness can lead to this doubt and questions. Oh yeah, what should I do about that? You see, but you didn't have to go there. You had the awareness, 
of whatever it was in this case that your mind is wondering uh, and and that is an experience you can say thinking or knowing knowing but if you're not don't do that you'll react to it and you'll say oh yes what should i do about that 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 fact right so it's a chain we've created that's what we tried to break up we tried to change okay go ahead in one of your videos you said many of those who take precepts disrobe after a week or two what is it that people think ordination will do for them that causes them to take it on lightly and then discard it lightly and why doesn't it do that for and why doesn't it do that for them oh, I see. right well people tend to think that that once you ordain you become free from all the problems of the world hmm? I mean, really what's in their mind is it's an escape. It's like, oh, this is so much suffering. How can I be free from it? Ordination doesn't do that, I think. I mean, it does free you from things, but it doesn't free you... What it doesn't see, what it doesn't free you from is your aversion to things. And that's the real problem. So you become a monk and... It's a solid it's a solid idea you know wanting to escape the world wanting to be free from wanting to be free from the need to get a job need to be socially active like socially involved with friends and so on need to use money the need to worry about not not exactly the need but the worry about things like clothes and food and you know, status and, and and all of this so becoming a monk you sometimes you don't eat you 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 go without food some sometimes you know you don't have a choice what you're going to wear many many things many times where you have to go without soap or you have to go without without um, toothbrush many many things so that's that's awesome the the, the desire to give up the worry about those things and the need for those things and the constant seeking out of, of all of that awesome but that doesn't say anything about who you are underneath so a person can have this desire to be free from that which is good but they can also be full of lots and lots of of greed anger and delusion and that's really what it comes down to so it doesn't actually have to do with the wrong idea i don't think you know, the idea is fine, wanting to leave society. The question really, when you think about it, is whether they're ready. So they they become a monk. The problem is not that it wasn't what they thought. The problem is they're not ready for it. They're not capable of it. They're too caught up, and they just can't do it. That's what happens, for the most part. And along the path of realizing that you can't do it, there often arises excuses like it's not worth doing basically this is wrong that's wrong the monastery that i'm at this is this terrible I mean, that happens wherever they are i'm that's not an excuse on my part to say oh yeah our monast like our monastery is terrible but i'm just saying that people are using it as an excuse no that's a common excuse wherever you go it's easy to find fault when you're looking for it and uh, certainly it's more difficult in a place like I've had students ordain, I had one student ordain in Winnipeg, and that was really difficult because it was just me and him in a house. So for him, 
not not easy. But he eventually went to Thailand into the forest and disrobed anyway. He, he took full ordination in northeast of Thailand in the perfect place and still couldn't take it. So I'd say more often than not, that's just an excuse. Because becoming a monk is really, part of it is the um, determination that no matter what, you know, it's not it's not conditional. I'm not going to say, well, I'll, I'll ordain, I'll stay ordained as long as you know, it's comfortable to do so, or as long as people bring me food every day, or that kind of thing. You know, as long as I get to live in the forest, as long as this, as long as that. So, the point being that even a monk can be here in a in the city, because that's not going to stop me from being a monk. Anyway, was really I think it comes down to it's not easy. You have to really want it, and I don't know. I think I was a monk in a past life. For whatever faults I may have, being a monk is is being able to, the ability to be a monk is not one of them. Inability to be a monk is not one of them. And for some people, it's like that. The ones who stay. They were born to be monks, it seems. If you weren't, it's pretty easy to disrobe. Okay, next. When noting bird calls, I'm not sure what to do in between. Should I pick another sound or put my mind on all sounds as if they were one? Can do, either way. It's not really important. Important is where your mind is. If your mind is on the sound, that there is sound, you can just say hearing, because in the end it's only your brain the processing in your brain that is able to separate them the, uh, the, the raw experience is just sound, right? and so you don't have to differentiate, but you can differentiate and part of that can be noting the, the perception, if you perceive something to be a bird, you can say perceiving or knowing that it's a bird knowing, knowing, that kind of thing but it doesn't matter whether it's specific or whatever it appears to you as, and that'll change. You see, it's meditation has to be very flexible. So one moment it's like this, the next moment it's like that. One moment it's the whole sound, next moment it's one sound. Okay, next. We have a question from Two Thumbs Fresh, probably one of the more interesting names in our meditation group. Regarding Buddhist imagery, what is the thought on tattoos depicting the Dhamma wheel? I feel such a physical reminder may help my practice. I understand this may impact the ego. Mm -hmm. Tattoos, huh? You know, there was a guy who got uh, arrested in Sri Lanka for for entering the country with a Buddha tattoo on his arm. I saw that news story, yeah. Not exactly arrested. I think he was just deported, right? But they took him well, into custody and interrogated him and said, do you realize what you've got on your arm there? Yeah, they, there was a woman as well. They would not let her into the country. She was yeah. detained. Yeah, they definitely won't let you into the country. But yeah. So keep that in mind. Also, uh, we had one meditator who had a, a woman with blood, like a vampire or something, with blood dripping out of her mouth and a huge cross tattoo on his arm, like a, a Christian... I don't know, Catholic cross, huge. And he wanted to ordain as a monk. 
and we probably shouldn't have let him, but we were, we, he actually did ordain as a novice, not for very long, ended up disrobing. So there's those concerns, um, because you really, it's not exactly against the rules to ordain with a tattoo, but it's, mm, and lots of monks get tattoos anyways. My teacher has tattoos from when he was very young. You can see them very, very faded. They've got to be 70, 80 years old, 70 plus years old now. Wow. Do you think the Dhamma wheel would be the same as, as an image of the Buddha in Sri Lanka? As far as being objectionable as a tattoo? Probably not. But it's, uh, I mean, the point is that it's questionable as to how respectful that is to put it on your body because the body is not considered to be a temple in Buddhism. The body is this thing that we've gotten stuck with and to it's like it's like calling yourself the Dhamma kind of thing. Which I mean we are Dhamma, we're all Dhamma, but the Dhamma in the Dhamma wheel, that's the highest, highest. I was just talking about how high it is. That's something that we it's our banner, our flag, right? So to put it on your body, I mean, take for example, suppose you put it in, in your inner thigh, which is apparently a place where people put tattoos. I'm just, this is a crass example. That would be awful, right? You would be like, oh my gosh, that's that's distasteful. The point, the reason I bring that up is is there's a reason why, because the body is not the, ta not, you know, the, the, the banner, you know, the body is kind of, so... So then it's just a matter of degree. Well, obviously, it's better if you put it on your arm, or it's even better if you put it on the top of your head. And that's where many Buddhists, Buddhist monks will put an image of the Buddha here and all sorts of Buddhist Dhamma writings here, and it's protection. Now, there's monks who have their whole skull tattooed, and on their back they put them as well. But... And, and and so in Thailand, this is fine. There's no sense that that is disrespectful. But you have to keep in mind that it is could be considered disrespectful by some people. So there's those concerns. I'm certainly not impressed by it personally. Um, because it seems to me it's, it's not about us. And so you say ego. That's a good point, I think. Uh, I don't think there's anything really wrong with it. Go ahead if you want to do it. But... Um, it's not something I would recommend. I would rather, if you take the conscious decision not to put it on your body for the reason that it is almost like God to us, you know, the truth is is our God kind of thing. I don't know if that's going too far, but truth is, it's that awesome. It's like the awesomest of the awesome. And if you do it consciously and consciously don't get a tattoo for that reason, I would say it can have just as much benefit, if not more. Just on a, tan on a tangent, recently I was in Florida and there was this, a woman came to our our meditation group and she had written some Devanagari on her on her uh, her arm, I think her inner arm or somewhere here, I can't remember. And I was looking at it, I said, oh, that's an interesting tattoo. I said, you know what it says? And I was looking at it. And she said, it says, the past, no, the future, the future does not exist. That's what it says. And so I was looking at it, and I couldn't get it. I was trying to get what are the words and trying to figure out how they translate into the future does not exist. And I, eventually I was just like, whatever. But then I, it, was, it was bothering me. So I said, okay, let me hold it up and let me see it. 
And then finally it hit me. It actually did say, the future does not exist. And it was written in, in Devanagari script. Which is, um, I don't know if I'd go for such a thing. Because it's permanent. It was also, you, know, you can't really write the future does not exist in, in Devanagari. And it was, it was not right, not correct. Anyway. Tattoo removal is a very lucrative business. You can get them removed, right? Thousands of dollars. Yes, my son is getting some removed and he's paying a lot of money for it. <laughs> it's a very lucrative business. Yeah. And the fact that it's lucrative should make you think twice. I mean, I, the Dhamma wheel I don't think is like that. It's not an embarrassing tattoo that you'd want to have removed. I'm just not convinced that it's the right way to go. I'm not anti-tattoo. I guess I am, but just in the sense that I don't recommend it. I'm not quite... I'm not going to look down on someone who has a tattoo, or it certainly doesn't offend me. But uh, I'm not convinced that it's the right thing to do. Are the Brahma Vihara directly? Sorry, it moved. Mm -hmm. Go. Are the Brahma Vihara directly beneficial to vipassana practice, for example, cultivated along with mindfulness, or just a cause for good merit in the next life? No, I think they can be directly beneficial. For sure. I mean, they help with extreme states. They're like a guard guardian. Metta and, and, and mindfulness of the Buddha and all of these, mindfulness of death, mindfulness of parts of the body they're like a means of keeping the mind from getting too far off track you know if the mind gets too far off track mindfulness is no longer possible so if you lose faith in in the practice you can't be mindful if you get full of lust you can't be mindful if you get full of hate you can't be mindful if you become lazy you can't be mindful so this these four states are, are guarded against using these four types of meditation uh, mindfulness of the Buddha guards against doubts and yeah doubts. Uh, mindfulness of death guards against laziness. Mindfulness of of or, or metta meditation uh, guards against anger, hatred, and parts of the body guards against lust. So they they're like the, they're like the, the, the Think of, you know, when you plant trees, when you plant a tree, you have to put the, the cage up and sticks to keep it up. So this is what keeps it growing. You know, the, the, the point is the tree to grow. It's not this cage, but the cage helps. Cage keeps it from falling over. What is the proper intention to have in mind before meditation? And, oh, what is the proper intention? That's a good question, I suppose. Um, to be mindful, you know, I mean, to that, to see things as they are. My intention now is to see things clearly. And moreover, to cultivate a habit of seeing things clearly. So it's going to be like a training, walking back and forth, sitting still. It's not something that's just going to flick a switch. It's something that is going to change 
going to become my habit and then I'm going to expand it into my life so that I am able to see things clearly all the time. That's about it. I think I think it should be simple like that. I don't think there should be much more intention. Like I want to become enlightened or want to levitate or read people's minds or remember past lives. Those can be problematic. I often feel as though I am living a double life between Dhamma and worldly, thing, worldly things. I want to further my practice, but at time my mind takes on a nihilistic approach, and I tend to indulge in pleasures, thinking I could have only this one life. Do you have any tips for overcoming this? Oh, sorry. That's all. He just finishes it with, do you have any tips for overcoming mm -hmm. this? Well, meditate on the pleasures. You know, I mean, it's that's part of the problem of why we're meditating, is then we have this knowledge that we are not really satisfied by pleasures, and yet we still seek them out. And so, being mindful of the, the pleasures, meditating on them, seeing them clearly, can help you. You see, it immediately relieves the desire to chase after. It's just a matter of cultivating that habit and cultivating the ability to to constantly see that's um, you know it's it's conflicting right we have conflicting mind states and they're gonna try to one-up each other all the time so we have to work in that direction the buddha said it's like a tree leaning in one direction very hard for it to fall in the other direction it's not going to fall in the other direction so you have to pull it up and lean it in the other direction. Get your mind to, to incline towards freedom, towards peace. Otherwise it's going to fall in the, in the other direction. Sorry, not very specific. And basically just keep practicing. Right, um, so let's, I think that's all right. Robin, you want to it say is. something about our new project? I do, yes. Um, so we, um, we uh, put our campaign online tonight. If you go to uh, Bhante's YouTube channel, it's there, or it's also on his Facebook page. And um, it is our campaign to uh, measure, gauge the interest and support for a monastery meditation center to be established in Hamilton in January. So Bhante is going to be returning to school in September. And if all goes well, establishing a meditation and monastery in that area, right in the area of the school in January. So our uh, You Caring campaign is on his page on YouTube and also on Facebook. And um, early support would be fantastic because with these um, fundraising campaigns, they really suggest that, you know, if people can, if people have the ability to um, support it early on, it's very encouraging because a, a campaign that's receiving some early support 
the more support it receives, the more interest and support it will receive. It, it just kind of generates and snowballs. And it'd be really wonderful to support Bonte in this endeavor. It's a very worthwhile project. And there's also something that ties in a little bit with that. We had a planning meeting earlier, and we were talking about you know the many things that a, a new monastery and meditation center will need you know, support from volunteers. So just a, a very beginning idea of seeing what sort of interest there would be among people that follow Bhante's teachings online to um, being part of an online volunteer group. And we've tentatively um, picked out Sunday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern as potentially uh, a good time for this group to get together on a weekly basis. You know, we're all here meditating from 8 to 9 Eastern time. That, that's what my frame of reference um, might be different where you are. But directly after the meditation, we listen to Odama talk. And directly after that would be um, a group for uh, an online group for anyone who's interested in becoming a volunteer. There's lots of different things that a monastery meditation center would need. And many of them can be arranged from people that are quite a distance away. So just another, just another level of support um, to try to assist in helping this uh, meditation in monastery really come to be. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. Um, um, we'll be starting a the McMaster Buddhism Society in September, which I'm kind of keen about. There's hopefully I have to contact them, but the head of the people who have set, set it up said we were going to meet sometime in August. So at Welcome Week, we're going to have a they have this thing called the Clubs Fest, where all the clubs have a table. So we're going to actually have a table where people can come and students at the university can come and uh, sign up for the club. And we'll have meetings and sessions and sort of snowball from there. The idea is that eventually whatever place we have will be the headquarters of the McMaster Buddhism Association. And uh, and for many, many of you, that means nothing because none of you are in the area or go to McMaster. But it should mean something because um, it, if we have a solid local support, it means we can accomplish much more internationally. I'll be able to much better produce uh, videos and, and uh, you know, have higher quality teachings as I have the audience and this, the support here. So there's that. Yeah, you're kind of a one-man band sometimes with all the different things that you do <laughs> and with going back to school. <laughs> that's going to be rough. So it, it'll be nice, you know, even even for people that are outside of the local area, there can potentially be people who, you know, who are interested in helping that have particular talents that might lend themselves to even helping from a distance. Um, we were just talking in the planning meeting about, you know, even if there's someone who has um, the knowledge of, of how to facilitate Sri Mangalo International becoming a recognized uh, nonprofit organization, you know, th things like that. There's really a lot of things that are needed. And if anyone is interested in any aspect of assisting with this, if you show up to the uh, Sunday night, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time meeting, we uh, would definitely appreciate the support. And I'm just looking at the Ucaring campaign and it's up to $822. Awesome. Very nice.
Okay, and with that, I think we'll log off tonight. Thanks, Robin, for helping out. And thank you, everyone, for your questions and for meditating with us. Hope to see you all again. Thank you, Bhante. Be back again tomorrow. Thanks. <laughs>